Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. With me today, I have retired FBI agent Don Sherman, and I have known Don for at least 25 years. Actually, whenever I was looking into the FBI honors internship, I asked Don if I could interview him and as I was preparing for that. So anyway, over the last month or so, there was an article in the Dallas newspaper about Don and that was shared with me. And so whenever I came home this weekend, I asked him if he'd meet up and talk cases and stories and all good things FBI. So Don, thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be here, Leah. I wanted to kind of start with, I, I've always found it fascinating. When I was at the Bureau, I think I asked every agent I met and had time to ask them, how did they become an FBI agent? Did they always want to be an agent? And so that's my question for you today. Sure. I grew up watching uh, the FBI story uh, oh, yeah. back in the 60s with uh, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. and just thought that was the neatest job. And at that point, I didn't know any agents or have any firsthand experience with it. But And I really didn't think seriously about doing it as a career at that point. But once I got got to college and got into my uh, Bachelor of Science in Business Administration with an emphasis in accounting, the FBI came calling on me to try and recruit me uh, to come in as a special agent accountant. This was about 1977 or 78. At that point, I turned them down because I was going to go back to law school at Chapel Hill and didn't really want to go uh, right out to work at that point. So I turned them down on that recruiting uh, visit. Fast forward a few years later, I had the opportunity to build a family business in the early 80s, and we built that up in the Carolinas, Virginia, and Georgia. By 1985, it was doing extremely well nationwide, and we were offered by the uh, franchise company to buy us out, and I decided to sell the company when they offered me more than it was worth. It was at that point, 1985, that I found myself unemployed with a lot of money and a lot of good experience but needing to find a new profession. I decided that now might be a good time to uh, apply to the FBI and uh, go uh, do something to serve my country, do something good instead of just chasing money. And that's what I did in 1985, applied uh, through the Charlotte Division. I initially applied under their diversified program because I thought at that stage that I wanted to go work violent crime and um, be a door kicker. <laughs> I'd been an avid outdoorsman and a hunter uh, as a kid and enjoyed all, all kinds of shooting sports and just thought that would be the uh, way I would want to go. So I applied diversified and then uh, I uh, postponed my entry in uh, 1988 when they called because I couldn't sell my house. That was right after the uh, market had taken a nosedive in 87, and uh, I called and asked them if I could defer my entry a while, and they, of course, said I didn't have to come in at that at that moment. Then, by the time I'd sold my house, six months to a year later, they didn't need any more diversified applicants, mm-hmm. and they asked me if I could do anything else besides compete with the military guys, and told them I had a degree in accounting, and I knew that was one of the uh, five entry programs at that stage with the mm-hmm. FBI. So they invited me to come in and take the accounting exam in Charlotte, and I agreed to do that to see if I could come in as a special agent accountant. That's how I came in, ultimately. Cool. So since you came in under that program, did you kind of know you would end up working white-collar type stuff? They didn't specifically say that, but of course it was 
likely that that was going to be the case if that's mm -hmm. the way they hired me. And once I got to Quantico, most new agents were going to New York or Los Angeles because the, the uh, older agents would not go to those high cost of living areas uh, sure. unless they were forced to and uh, the Bureau couldn't do that. So they'd send all the new agents to these big cities. and It was unheard of for agents, new agents to get a choice of cities. When my class came through, they gave my class the opportunity to choose from nine cities and to rank order the uh, cities. And at that point in the Southwest, there was a savings and loan crisis going mm -hmm. on. Uh, the FBI was leading uh, a task force to investigate. All of the nine cities that I was offered at about the time I was graduating in 1990, were, were all of them were west of the Mississippi. Little Rock, Dallas, Houston, Oklahoma City, Denver, and so forth. I uh, chose Dallas as my first pick uh, and Denver as my second because I had been to both cities on business in prior years and knew something about them. By fate or providence, I uh, got my first choice and was uh, allowed to go to Dallas uh, when I graduated. That was February of 1990. I actually interviewed my forensic accounting mentor from the Bureau several episodes ago, and she started with the Bureau in the middle of the savings and loan crisis as well and she was working the failure of Penn Square Bank in Oklahoma City. That was her very first case as a forensic accountant. So whenever you started with the Bureau, do you remember your first case? Yes. When I got to Dallas, I was assigned to a field training agent. Brad Wheeler was a senior agent in the office, already a grade 13, and he had a big case against security savings and loan uh, mm -hmm. out of Texarkana. I was assigned to, to train under Brad and to help him finish that case up, to carry the water, so to speak, because mm -hmm. he had the case about ready for indictment and a subsequent trial. So it was really a good way for me to uh, get into a big case that had been well investigated and to actually go to trial and, and see uh, what the uh, end product needed to look like. Yeah. Uh, that was a great teaching time for me. We uh, ended up going to trial down in San Antonio because the borrower that was engaged in the fraud with the uh, owners was out of San Antonio. So that's where venue was established in, uh, in the uh, Western District of Texas, in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. What types of cases did you end up working? So you kind of started in the savings and loan, but then what did that grow into over the years? Uh, I worked that case through the trial with, with Brad, and uh, out of that uh, case, I spun out a, a bankruptcy fraud case against uh, one of the uh, owners mm. of Security Savings because he was trying to hide his assets, uh, knowing that uh, he was about to be convicted of the uh, SNL fraud. Mm -hmm. That was my first bankruptcy fraud case. It was actually the first case that I opened on my own of any case mm -hmm. in the Bureau. I worked that for another year or so and took it to indictment and to trial. I actually lost that, that first trial I had on my own, which was really the best thing that could have happened to me as a new agent. Yeah. Because I uh, learned uh, the kind of mistakes you can make and how much oh, it sure. can cost you. Uh, there's no teacher like failure. Yeah. That really was the best thing that happened to me during my probationary period uh, there the first year. I uh, was having a pretty good time with that work, but most of these cases were old cases, old paper cases. Mm -hmm. The uh, transactions were seven or eight years old yeah. at least. Yeah. And witnesses' memories were failing. and Sure. There was not much excitement to the cases uh, in my viewpoint. So in 92, an uh, ad uh, was posted in Dallas Division for an undercover agent on a uh, totally different kind of uh, case. This was a fraud against the government case, DOD fraud. All the uh, military contractors in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area 
There yeah. was a uh, big undercover operation going to investigate robbery schemes and DOD uh, contracts. I applied for it based on my business experience from the 80s. I was still pretty much a brand new agent, no undercover training, and really very little investigative experience. But based on my business experience, they agreed to put me in to the undercover role. Yeah, wow. And so then you worked that one all the way through? and They told me that it would be maybe uh, three months undercover. Uh, you know, they would have me out. 16 months later and oh, no. about 50 subjects, I was still in. I met my first corrupt public official while I was in that undercover role. Mm-hmm and opened my, my first public corruption case. So did that kind of, so that spun that out, spun of, out the, of that, uh, that the DOD, uh, one. DOD fraud case. Okay. That was my first Dallas City Council member case. Opened that case, uh, it was uh, an extortion case where the uh, Dallas City Council member extorted a large corporation in the uh, Dallas area in exchange for a, a zoning vote on their mm. property. It, it really was not something, again, that I was expecting to happen. It just kind of happened in the undercover operation that I met the right people and heard the right things to uh, open that case. Mm-hmm. Totally changed the direction of my career. Is that when you started doing more public corruption yes, work? Yes, yes. The way it worked uh, with, with public corruption cases, if you work one successfully and it makes the front page of the paper in the evening news, mm-hmm. the public begins to see that the FBI is taking it seriously. So all of a sudden, more calls started coming in uh, with new cases. It just took off from there. I had one case after another from that first case. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. So did this undercover role with 50 subjects and leading into another public corruption case, did it ever end? (laughs) Uh, Yes, it did. Uh, We uh, indicted quite a few of those subjects and uh, went to trial on several of them in Dallas and uh, convicted uh, everybody that we indicted uh, wow. in the DOD fraud case. And ultimately I was able to indict that city council member and uh, get him convicted in uh, 1997, I guess it was. Kind of in this process too. Okay, so those cases kind of come to an end and then what were you able to do in that time frame as well? I finished the undercover work summer of 93. In September of 93, they had posted uh, notice of a tryout for the uh, Dallas Division SWAT team. And I saw my opportunity to come back around and do uh, the thing that I really wanted to do and work violent crime through uh, being a SWAT operator on the team. So I got to try out in September of 93. 20 of us tried out for four openings on the team. I got one of the four spots that September and became an operator uh, shortly after that. Yeah, that's awesome. So did did that open up a different type of case for you to start working? It uh, Or did you still... It, It really... The SWAT was a corollary duty. Every agent had to have a, uh, a strong investigative background, a, a, a core discipline, if you will. And mine became public corruption because I was yeah. working so many of those big cases. And uh, SWAT was just a corollary duty that I got to do in addition to my investigative work. Mm-hmm. But it was totally different working with a team for the first time in my life, really. We had a team of 20, roughly, and uh, uh, learned a lot of new skills, a whole different kind of camaraderie that uh, I had longed to have as an agent. That's cool. It sounds like just whenever you saw opportunities, you would just try it out. And yes. I think that's uh, awesome. You know, when an opportunity presents itself, uh, you just have to go for it. Yeah. I uh, was fortunate to uh, get the uh, things I applied for. Yeah, that's really exciting. So one of my favorite things to ask any investigator on our podcast is if they will share at least one of their favorite cases with us that they've ever worked. So do you have one you'd want to share? Sure. 2004, I was engaged to be married uh, to my son's mother, and I was going over to her house to visit one afternoon. 
University Park, uh, Texas, which is a very affluent part of uh, the Dallas area. And she was renting a duplex there. I'm driving down the street and see a uh, large BMW pull over to the side of the road. And a, a gentleman got out that I thought I recognized. And I, I kind of did a double take, knowing that he was a long way from his uh, Dallas City Council district oh. being in that uh, neighborhood. I'm rubbernecking as I uh, <laughs> go down the street trying to see what he's doing, where he's going. And turned out that he was, he was the mayor pro tem of Dallas at that point, going to visit his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. there in the uh, duplex that she was renting. Just within a matter of days, we had a complainant come into the uh, division to complain that he was being extorted by, by this same city council member, Mayor Pro Tem, and some of his associates hmm. over a, a big uh, zoning vote on a uh, affordable housing project. These were big, big projects, $25 million roughly in construction costs per project. Very big companies involved in uh, building these things uh, using federal income tax credits to uh, subsidize the uh, construction. Uh, so they're fairly complicated uh, transactions where they syndicated the uh, tax credits and sold them off to uh, big companies, that, Fortune 500 companies that needed to buy income mm-hmm. tax credits to offset their income. Yep. So I'm learning a, a whole new uh, scheme of things with kind of back to my education in uh, tax and law. We had just a few days from the time the complaint came in to try to get up on a wiretap to get this case uh, kicked off the right way. And I had never done a wiretap at that point in my career. I'm still relatively young agent at that point. I'm about to be married and, and I'm getting ready to bite off this, this huge case potentially. Uh, and I did wrote the uh, affidavit uh, for the wiretap in 10 days, which we thought might be a record for getting one up. We got up on that wiretap in uh, November, December of 2004. That ended up costing me my honeymoon. Uh, oh, no. Because I got so embroiled in, uh, in all these uh, multiple wiretaps that I had to keep writing affidavits for. Oh, gosh. Uh, that uh, I really couldn't stop and uh, take a honeymoon which might have been the downfall of that marriage. Uh, I don't recommend that to uh, anyone considering my line of work. Put your marriage first. We uh, ultimately got up on uh, half a dozen lines, wiretapped 33,000 phone calls. Oh my goodness. Uh, in that case. No wonder you were writing so many affidavits. And, uh, and transcribed every one of them word yeah. for word for trial. We also seized or. Uh, subpoenaed multiple bank accounts. And into your line of work, we uh, traced about 100,000 bank transactions. Oh my goodness. Uh, That's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> That's a whole lot. So we were, we were extremely busy. I had a team of people assigned to work with me. A couple of agents were working with me and a financial analyst. We brought in a couple of IRS, IRS uh, CID agents to uh, work with us as well. We ended up indicting seven subjects in that case in 2007, I guess it was, including the mayor pro tem. That went to trial in 2009. We convicted all seven at trial. Wow. And all of them went to prison with long, the longest sentences I'd ever seen in a corruption case. What were those? The uh, mayor pro tem got 15 years. Wow. To the point he almost died in prison. Wow. He was in his 70s when we convicted him. Mm-hmm. His girlfriend got nine years, I believe, uh, for her role in it. There were, there were a lot of lengthy sentences. Uh, planning commissioner got uh, 14 years, I believe. Wow. We convicted a state representative in that case also. She uh, got a little bit of time, not as much as the uh, the locals. 
Did you have a dollar amount associated with this case? Oh, yes. We were into uh, many tens of millions of dollars of yeah. losses, uh, which, of course, jacked the guidelines up on uh, all the subjects. And uh, that's how they got the long prison sentences, because they hit so high in the guidelines. The case was uh, just a case that really rocked uh, the city of Dallas, taking out so many public officials at one one time. And, yeah. Uh, and all from, like, one complaint? From one complaint, one wow. cooperating witness that came wow. in that was being extorted. Mm-hmm. One thing about corruption cases is that they are best worked from an undercover approach. Mm. And it was fortuitous for me and for the Dallas Division that I had had uh, that undercover experience Sure. Uh, that I was able to bring to task in, the, in this case and others like it. Everything had to be recorded right. in order to uh, convict a public official. Which I've often thought about that in the CFE world, they talk about how kickbacks are one of the most difficult things mm-hmm. to investigate because you really got to have somebody turn or like you're saying, undercover. And so as a private investigator or you know, a private citizen fraud examiner, very few people are just going right. to turn because they're sitting across the table from an accountant. You know, I mean, right. it's not like That's there's right. a whole lot of... And uh, I, I can tell you that even... That. even uh, Sitting across the table from me with their voices on tape, some of these people were so arrogant to uh, deny uh, their guilt, not take the plea, and then end up getting a long prison sentence. Right. It was always my objective as an agent to uh, try to get them to plead and save the government time and money uh, of having to go to trial. Very hard to do with public uh, officials. Yeah, we were, we were talking about that earlier, that just whether it's something in their personality or what, but to fight it to the end like that. Yes. There's a certain level of narcissism, I think, and the fact that they, they've been elected, they know that they have a certain following in the community sure. that... Yeah, uh, popularity. There's a chance they can roll the dice at trial and mm-hmm. uh, get one person out of 12 to uh, vote to acquit yeah. just on personality. Yeah, that seems like a bit really big risk to me, but it I guess... It certainly was for these folks. But I could see it also fitting more of a political lifestyle, too, being willing to take bigger risks like that anyway. Yes. And, and like you said, roll the dice. Yeah, that's super interesting. Let's just take a break real quick, and we'll be right back to my interview with Don Sherman. If you're a professional with continuing education requirements, then you've sat through your fair share of required training hours. Let's just say you probably didn't love it. And every year, the requirement hours sneak up on you at the worst time. That's why we've created the Investigation Game, an interactive CPE training experience that qualifies for two hours of ethics continuing education. The Investigation Game, the case of the Man Cave, gives players the opportunity to walk through an investigation and solve a case based on actual events. Think of it as your favorite detective game, but with an opportunity to learn while you play. Players are given case details, decision-making steps, and additional case information to then quantify the embezzlement loss, identify schemes used, and uncover assets purchased with stolen funds. Gameplay wraps up with a presentation providing the case solution and awards the winning teams. This valuable event makes earning continuing education hours fun by combining a real-life case study with an interactive team-building game that we think you're going to love. To learn more or to register, visit investigationgame.com. Welcome back. Next, I'd kind of like to move into uh, just what are some of the things that work in cases that you have found helpful in your career in communicating what happened in a case to a judge or a jury 
and just because I've studied this stuff for so long right. and even working some when I was at the Bureau, just the number of tentacles that can come out of a case like this and really simplifying that down to right. communicate a compelling message. Organization was key. In 2004, the case that I was telling you about with the uh, affordable housing uh, contracts, we uh, began to use a new case management system that was available in the private sector. We put all of our evidence in a timeline. Mm-hmm. I explained to uh, my team that there's no such thing as a coincidence. Mm-hmm. I explained to them if, if two things happen next to each other, there's a reason for yeah. it. Your job is to find out what the reason is. Yeah, I like that. And uh, when we get into court, we're really just storytellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to tell the story of what happened to the jury. We need to do it in a chronological, orderly fashion mm-hmm. that they will understand the sequence of events. Mm-hmm. The, the biggest thing I would, would tell anybody going to trial is that you have to be prepared to answer every question. Everything you don't explain from a standpoint of the uh, charges you brought, you're giving the uh, defense a chance to explain it the way they want to explain it. Yep. They can take the same set of facts and put a totally different spin on it if you don't explain it the way it really was. Everything has to be fully explained, mm-hmm. every fact. In that big case I just referenced, we had over 10,000 facts in that timeline when we went to trial. Having entered them all in there myself by hand, I uh, had a pretty good recollection of all of them. Mm-hmm. So I was a lead off witness to open up the, the trial. And then in closing, you're allowed to uh, present summary charts. Right. These are not redundant pieces of evidence. They're not evidence at all. Right. They're summaries of the evidence. So we've put a great deal of time and energy into uh, creating charts that mapped out the uh, workings of the case, mm-hmm. traced the uh, relationships between the people and the money. I summarized the uh, closing of the case that way, using those charts, getting those back to the jury room so that they could understand the evidence that they summarized. Right. Yeah, super helpful. And there is something about numbers and even dates that it's almost like someone that they're, someone who's not comfortable with numbers and dates on a jury, it's almost like you can just almost see on their face that they've decided they're shutting down. They don't know. And so by presenting that in some sort of visual way kind of yes, helps break through that. that. That's true. Uh, people, it's been proven that people learn in uh, two ways, visually and by audio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's best to present it both ways if sure, you can so that, that uh, you don't take any chances about which way uh, they learn. Right. Cover all the bases. Exactly. So one of the areas that whenever I have a client come in and, and a lot of times in the private sector, you know, we're working embezzlements, mm-hmm. that type of fraud case. They often want to know, and even new analysts on my team, they don't necessarily understand how the criminal process works. You know, working up an investigation, the difference between an indictment or information, just all of the steps that kind of uh, right. are required to get through that criminal process. A lot of times they don't understand how much time is involved as well to make that happen. So will you kind of explain how that works? Yes, yes, I will. When the original complaint comes in, we, we take down the fact that the complainant alleges, and then we determine uh, what statutes might be violated uh, by the uh, facts that have been alleged. Then we have to uh, go up the chain of FBI management to uh, open a case, mm-hmm. presenting it to uh, all the management above us. And that's particularly difficult in corruption cases because these are high profile cases and they get a lot more scrutiny, uh, sure. both at the public level and 
within the bureau itself. So you have to have your uh, ducks in a row uh, when you present. And you become somewhat of a salesman, really, mm-hmm. as, as an investigator, putting your facts together and the allegations in a way that you present the uh, case opening and you have to explain to your bosses how you're going to work the case successfully if they're going to uh, devote all this manpower and, and uh, resources to the case. Sure. That's how uh, we, we begin the case. And, and then with corruption cases, not only do you have to sell the top management in the uh, FBI field division, mm-hmm. you also have to go sell the U.S. attorney on the case. Right. If they're not willing to prosecute, the FBI is not going to investigate it. Right. And that's usually the piece that that's my clients don't job. understand. That's another sales job. U.S. attorneys are political animals. Mm. Uh, they're appointed by the president right. in uh, office at uh, that uh, juncture. And uh, if you're working corruption cases, chances are you're going to step on some political toes sure. uh, doing it. They don't want to make a misstep in their career as a prosecutor and, and charge somebody that's not that we're not able to prove guilty. It's a difficult process of taking those facts and getting a case opened and investigated properly. So how about the difference between, so if if a forensic accountant like myself puts together a case for a client and I take it to an agent and they get it approved, the AUSA says, you know, we'll work this, then what's the difference between, you know, in a lot of my cases, an information is filed. Right. Uh, what's the difference between an information and something like what I described and probably, an, I'm guessing, an indictment right. in public corruption? Most of our cases, uh, most of the cases I work were uh, investigated through a grand jury, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a panel of 23 uh, citizens that hear the uh, evidence that myself and the prosecutor would introduce to bring an indictment. We uh, present the evidence to the uh, grand jury and then present an indictment, which is just a charging instrument, to the grand jury. Mm-hmm. They read the indictment and vote on whether or not they want to approve it. And information uh, is a different approach where we might go to the subject mm-hmm. of the investigation and begin to talk to them and their attorney about a guilty plea mm-hmm. because we want their cooperation in the uh, larger case against other subjects. And uh, we want to save the government time and money. If the uh, subject and his or her attorney uh, agree to uh, cooperate, Rather than indict them, we would uh, file what's called an information, which is essentially the same inf- the same information that you would put in an indictment. It's just filed with everyone's agreement right. that this is something we're going to plead guilty to. So you just moved ahead a few we steps. We would jump a couple of steps. We'd get around the trial step. Right. An indictment most always is going to go to trial, mm-hmm. where an information much more likely can go direct to plea. Yeah, yeah. So then after information or indictment is filed, then either they plea or go to trial, right? And then after the result of those two things, either way, if they're either plea or they're convicted, they're going to end up at sentencing, which is another hearing. Yes. Uh, Once they're charged by information or indictment, an arrest warrant is uh, usually issued by the judge. Um, Mm -hmm. That's given to us at the FBI to go arrest our subjects. Mm -hmm get them into custody for that initial appearance in front of the judge where they will be advised of their rights as far as being a defendant and uh, how it will proceed from that standpoint. They're arraigned on their charges and they get get a chance to plead guilty or not guilty at that point. And obviously if they plead not guilty, we're going to trial. 
the investigators working with the prosecutor through throughout this entire process to basically sit at their right shoulder and uh, make sure they know all the facts sure. that are at play in the uh, process. Then the agent comes the uh, primary witness for the federal government in the uh, trial. And if we get them through trial and get them convicted, then you get into the sentencing phase of the case. And that's where uh, you've got people that are assigned to the court who uh, are involved in making a sentencing recommendation to the judge based on the amount of dollar loss, the victims, right, so forth. And uh, it's usually in this sentencing phase, too, that the victims get to write their letters to the judge, right? Like their victim uh, they, they impact will, They statements. will typically bring uh, character witnesses and other you know, things of that nature trying to influence the judge, yes. Right. I've had several do that to talk about how, you know, the person that's stolen all this money has impacted the community right. or their small business or whatever. That's right. If someone is wanting to become a federal agent, what's some advice you'd give them? I went a very non-traditional route to become an FBI agent, running my own business for years before I applied. And, of course, that worked out well for me in getting the undercover role later on. But almost every crime that I can think of somehow involves money. I believe that I got the best education to be a special agent with the FBI in getting an accounting degree. I learned how to uh, go through a set of books, trace monies, and all of that paid off in in all of my cases later on when Mm -hmm. we uh, looked at the uh, financial aspects of the case, traced monies, including tracing the monies overseas to Swiss accounts. Right and going in and retrieving those monies and seizing monies in local accounts as well. Yeah, I think financial transactions, I mean, I'm very biased because it's what I do every day, but I think financial transactions sometimes, if they're traced real simply and you can just really get it down to a simple way of explaining it, it's some of the best evidence because it's happening through third parties, people tainting different things, but if you can, spell that out even when it's been layered and tried to hidden you know be hidden different places it can still all be traced and i think that's some of the most compelling yeah, evidence yes, that's it, pretty straightforward it certainly is and the, and the way they handle the money uh is usually uh indicative of what their intent is right uh, if you uh, see them dealing in cash mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, paper instruments that's an indication of uh you know trying to hide the ball and right and then using uh, false accounts, uh, fake name accounts, right. and so forth. Every check has to be endorsed, so you got a signature right. on, on a primary piece of evidence. I mean, it's just so it's much good, more it's good stuff. So much more clear than like blood splatter. You know what I mean? I mean, right. just to me, financial transactions. And are then, just then really we have evidence. the luxury of marrying up the uh, financial transaction with a uh, tape recording. Yes. Talking about the transaction, yes. your golden. Absolutely. So that you know the purpose behind it, the intent behind it, the yes, story behind it, that's right. even better. That's right. Yeah. Or or in some of our cases, matching that up with social media posts, you know, what they were doing when Absolutely. they did that. So giving all that There's context. There's so many, so many ways that people uh, give themselves away these days. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that advice. I mean, like I said, I am biased since it's what we do every day, but to have that understanding of how money works and flows to be able to use that mm-hmm. in any type of investigation, not just uh, public corruption or white collar embezzlement. And I would add that most of my cases were very tedious at some stage, mm-hmm. uh, tracking hundreds of thousands of transactions. And it wasn't a shootout every day on the streets <laughs> right. of Dallas, like what you see on television. And the best cases are made uh, sitting behind a computer screen uh, in an office. 
mm-hmm. oftentimes. In 22 years of being a special agent, including half of that being on the SWAT team, I never had to fire a single shot at a subject. Oh, wow. Despite making hundreds of arrests, high-risk arrests, mm-hmm. and no one ever was able to make a shot on me. So it's nothing like uh, what television portrays it to be to get you yeah. to, uh, to watch. So if that's what somebody's looking for, maybe they need to <laughs> look elsewhere. Join the military. <laughs> there you go. So what about just investigators in general? Any advice that you kept in mind that you think were helpful in your Yes, uh, I would say I have to be very patient Mm. with a great attention to detail. Over the course of my career, I conducted thousands of interviews. I became a student of linguistics, involuntary body movements, Mm -hmm. uh, all of those things that would give away uh, a person during an interview. And despite what you see on TV, we... uh, we don't waterboard people in criminal investigations. Right. So you just have to beat them with uh, knowing uh, the answers to all your questions right. before you ask them. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Don. My pleasure. And you had mentioned when we were talking that you are working on a book. Is this going to be a pretty long-term project? Or are you getting close to uh, The book is, is in final manuscript now. Oh, I'm about great. to go, go to the publisher uh, here within the next few months. Awesome. It's... Uh, It's really a book about my life story, including my FBI career and my business career. That's great. Well, whenever your book is published, you'll have to let us know so we can talk about it. I will. If somebody wants to connect with you, can they connect with you on LinkedIn? Yes. Yeah. And it's under Don. I found you under Don Don Sherman. Don Sherman, yes. Okay. No no aliases. Okay. No aliases anymore. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks so much. You're welcome, Leah. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To get updates on future podcast events and resources, please subscribe to our podcast, our YouTube channel, and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.